my name is Kate Park. If you don't know me, I serve as an intern pastor here at this community. And I'm really excited to give you guys the word of God today. Are you guys excited? Yes, thank you. Thank you for answering back. <laughs> uh, yeah, have you guys been enjoying the Galatians series that we've been going through? Yeah, I know it's like very densely packed. Like when you read through the Pauline epistles or the letters that Paul writes to all these different churches, you'll know that he is such a scholar. Like it's so densely packed with theology and doctrine. It's like, oh my goodness. But um, today I'm going to try to unpack it as easy, easily as possible. Okay, so uh, why don't we kind of do a recap of where we left off? So from the very beginning up until right now, Paul has been telling the church of Galatia, hey, you guys, you guys have been, you know, there's this wrong doctrine that's been infiltrating into the church. The gospel is only by Christ and of Christ. No works can actually add to your salvation. It is only because of what Christ did on the cross that he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the prophecies. That is the only reason why you get access to salvation. It's not because of what you do. It's not because you keep your Sabbath. Or it's not because you are circumcised or not. Those things have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. So get it right. And Paul is frustrated because it limits the people in Galatia, the Gentile believers that want to come to this Christian faith, they're limiting, uh, that kind of false doctrine is actually limiting them from coming to Christ. And so he's writing like furiously to these people like, hey, let's get it right. Believing in Christ, that he is a promised savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he paid the price so that we have free access to a relationship with God. That is the only gospel that you guys need to know. And that's what he's trying to drill this point in. And so I believe that the past five weeks we've been talking about Galatians, pretty much every point has been leading to that one thing. It's about Christ. It's about what he did on the cross. It's not about our works. We don't add to it. We can't subtract to it. Our conditions or nothing can change the fact that Christ has died for us. And we have salvation if we believe in it and we receive that he is Lord and Savior, right? Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> And I believe that's what this is. This Pastor Mel gave us a Jesus equals gospel. There's no extra. There's nothing added at all. And so it comes to this point. Paul continues and he actually gives up this uh, example. This example that they could relate to. And he said this is a man-made example. If we read through it from verse 15 to 16. It says to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... That's like a fancy word for saying basically even a promise that you make like with your friends or your brothers or whatnot has been ratified. And now the, oh, no. Oh, sorry. My thing doesn't show this. Okay. So no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There you go. And now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now, what Paul is trying to say here is like, look at a promise, for example, like a promise that you make with somebody. Whether that promise is fulfilled does not lie on the condition or your actions. It purely lies on the person that is making that promise to you. So if a person says, hey, I will do so and so for you. It's not based on, okay, I need to meet a certain standard or I need to live up to a certain way for that person to keep that promise. No, it's solely on the person that is giving that promise. So to give you a more relatable example, 
let's say for argument's sake, Pastor Myung-ah calls you up. She calls you up and she's like, hey, I want to give you $100. Why don't you guys meet me at Sangsu Station? Uh, the only thing you need to do is believe that she's actually going to give you $100 and she's calling you out to give you one. And you just need to go to Sangsu Station and receive the $100. That's as simple as that. It's like it doesn't have anything to do. Like you can send a nasty text message in between. Is she's faithful to, if she is faithful to her promise, no condition can really change her from giving you the $100. It's purely because of the promise that she made she's giving you the $100, not because of what you did. Now, let's kind of switch it up a little bit. Let's say Pastor Mewa calls you up and say, hey, I want to give you $100. Meet me at Sangsu Station. But I have one condition. Like, while I'm gone, I'm going to be traveling through Europe in the next few months. Like, while I'm gone, can you go to my house and check to see that everything is okay? You know, vacuum if it's a little too dusty. Like, uh, you know, make sure that everything is tidy and nice, that no, nobody broke into the house and that everything is safe. Then I'll give you $100. There is a condition that is added to that promise. It's not really a promise. It's actually, hey, I'm going to give you this wage for what you do. And it is not intentionally, it's not just a pure promise. It's saying like, hey, do this for me, and then I will give you the reward based on what you do for me. So if you do not go to her house while she's traveling around Europe and making sure that the house is safe and vacuuming once in a while, watering her plants, I don't know if she has plants in her house, but like, you know, like looking after her stuff, she's not going to give you the $100. Meaning that whether she fulfills that promise or not solely depends on what you do, how you do, and if you've done it well. She can totally say, hey, you didn't take care of my stuff. I'm not going to give you the $100, right? Same goes for a will of a family. Let's say there's this wealthy lady who has a whole bunch of money and she has two daughters. One daughter is rich and one daughter is really poor. And so before this lady dies, she writes a will and she says, okay, you know, since one of them is wealthy and one of them is poor, I'm going to give more of my inheritance to the poor daughter rather than the rich daughter. And let's say for argument's sake, one day before she died or passed away, that this rich daughter all of a sudden went bankrupt and lost all their money. That doesn't change the will. Like, the lawyer is not going to be like, oh, man, I have pity for you. Let me just give you some of the money. No. He's going to carry out the will exactly as it was made, the promise that was originally made. So these actions or these conditions do not change the promise is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying that whether you live according to the law or whether you don't doesn't change the fact that you are saved by the blood of Christ. And so there, if there is a promise that has been made, no condition or requirement will change that promise being fulfilled. And so in the next portion of the passage, Paul, oh, oh, there we go. So law wage, there's certain requirements that need to be uh, met. Uh, if you don't meet these requirements, you don't get the wage, you don't get the reward, you don't get the promise. But a promise, it only needs to be believed and only needs to be received. And so the next portion of the passage, Paul actually brings in Abraham's story and how God made a covenant with Abraham. Um, if you look in Genesis 15, this is the portion where God actually comes and makes a covenant or like a promise with Abraham. And he's saying like, <clears throat> hey, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to bless you through your offspring. I'm going to bless the nations. I'm I'm." Um, yeah, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the nations. And Abraham's like, God, how am I going to know that you're going to be true to your word? How, I, how will I know that you're going to keep your promise? And so this is a picture of basically what God did 
uh, and showed Abraham in that moment. It's kind of hard to see. I didn't, like, I looked up on Google, and there was, like, a lot of childish drawings of, like, animals being cut open. And so I was like, I don't want something too gory. And so I chose this more, like, nicer one. And so if you see kind of like on the bottom and on the side, you'll see animals that are cut up in half. And so that's exactly what um, God asked Abraham to bring. He said, bring an bring a ox, bring a goat and a ram and two birds and cut them in half and lay them out like this. And then Abraham falls asleep and God in a vision and a dream comes to Abraham in the form of that smoking pot right there and that flame of torch at the end of it. And he actually walks through these animals that are cut up. Now, to give you a bit of context of how people used to make covenant or unbreakable promises back in the day, this is what they would do. So usually it would be between like a master and a servant or, or between two people. Usually it, there would be somebody that's of a superior status and somebody of a lesser status. And they would make something called a covenant or an unbreakable promise. And what these animals actually sim- symbolize is, hey, if I don't keep my word and I don't keep this promise, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Essentially what they're saying is kill me if I don't keep this promise. They're making like a, like, a, like a swearing promise, right? Just kill me if I don't make this promise. And so what usually happens is the servant or somebody of a lesser social status would walk through these animals first. And then like the master or somebody that's making that promise with you is walking through together. And as soon as they walk through these two animals, the covenant is then being fulfilled. It's like, it's like okay, it's a set deal. You cannot break this promise anymore or I have the legal right to kill you if you do. But in this image, it's really interesting because Abraham has nothing to do with it. God is the only one who actually walks through these animals. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He's like saying like God is saying, I'm going to be the sole responsible person for whether I keep this promise or not. It has nothing to do with you, Abraham. It's because I'm making this promise to you that I'm going to fulfill this promise. It's because I'm making this promise to you. Only death would be able to keep me from, you know, not making this promise, keeping this promise. You can trust me that I've got this and you don't have to worry anything about it. It's essentially what uh, God is saying to Abraham through this event, through this covenant. And so Paul brings this back up. He's saying, hey, in verse 16 and 17, he's saying, look, through Abraham and his offspring, not springs, which is like, plural meaning all these other people offspring which refers to christ god is going to fulfill his promise to his people by blessing the nations essentially meaning he's going to give this blessing of salvation to not only the jews not only the people of god that that they thought were back in the day but to all people in all nations it is through abraham and through his offspring christ that god is going to reach all people and so paul is bringing this point back So when we read verses 17 and 18, it says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's saying that the law, even though it was introduced later on, because the promise was made first, this law doesn't change the condition or the requirements of whether you receive this salvation or not. He's saying this law has nothing to do with salvation. And so uh, for it, For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul is saying it's either by a promise that you receive in faith 
or it's either by law, whether you meet the requirements and you are saved by your works. It is one or the other. It can't be both. And so he's saying, so that's why the law doesn't count. That's why God's promises is the one that stands. Then I'm pretty sure that by now you might ask the question, why the law then? If, if our salvation had nothing to do with the law, it had nothing to do with our actions, why then did God actually bring the law to the Israelites 430 years after he actually made this covenant? Why did God introduce the law and ask his people to abide by this law? It kind of sounds a little contradictory, right? If he was just going to bring salvation among all people. Which brings us to today's sermon. The purpose of the law. <clears throat> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> the purpose of the law. So let's continue reading in Galatians. In 19 and 22, it says, why then the law? I'm guessing a lot of people in Galatia were asking that question. Or Paul is asking this rhetorical question, and he answers it. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. That is why the law was made. Oh, let's backtrack a little bit. What is the law, right? Uh, I, I, we, we've been throwing this word around a lot. We've been throwing like, oh, you don't have to abide by the law, da 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 da, da. But what actually entails the law? Now, the law, if you look in like the original language, it actually refers to the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what they call these five books is called Torah in Hebrew. Everybody say Torah. And that essentially translates into law. So these first five books were the books that the Jews would memorize. They would meditate on it. They memorized this in and out. They knew it from a very young age. They were taught to recite it, to memorize it, to keep the law in their hearts because this is what God had commanded them to do. And so um, the law is not just the Ten Commandments. I know it's easy for us to, when we think about law, it's immediately just to jump to, oh, the Ten Commandments, right? Because that is a law that was made a little bit more like, like, I don't know, like tangible to the people. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. If you read throughout the Torah, actually it adds up to around like 613 laws altogether. And so first the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites. And then as they continued this journey with God in the desert and whatnot, the laws continued to add. Like it, it kind of like branched off into different subcategories and whatnot to form all these laws and combined into the book of Torah. Now, I don't know if you guys read your Bible, the first five books. I'm hoping you guys did. I know we always make New Year's resolutions to try to go through the Bible. We go through Genesis and Exodus, and we fail. We turn to Matthew, and then we go to Psalms, right? But if we read the five books of the Bible, first five books, you'll notice that it actually doesn't really have a lot to do with law. It's actually a very little portion that the Torah mentions the law in itself. If you read it, it's actually a narrative. It's a story, right? In the beginning, God created the earth, and there was Adam and Eve, and then sin entered into the world. It's like this story that they're telling, and these stories that continue to culminate in how God intervened, and how God, you know, reached out to Abraham, and then later on, Isaac was born, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, and it's all these stories that happen. Even in Exodus, it's the story of how God delivered these people out of Egypt and out of slavery. It's a story more than it is like, like, a law that is written out for people to really abide by. And so when we look at this narrative, 
it really doesn't show like um, like the law and what they need to keep and how they kept it. It actually shows how they failed. Every single time there was some kind of law that was mentioned, the Israelites failed. The Israelites failed miserably. Like I'm telling you, they tanked, right? The first commandment, what was it? Like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the next commandment is, do not make any, uh, do not worship any other gods. Like, I'm your only God, right? What do the Israelites immediately do? They make a golden calf and freaking worship it, right? It's like they fail every single time. And this continues on throughout the whole Torah. God continues to make these, like, commandments and these laws. Moses brings it to the people and says, hey, this is how you are in a relationship with God. This is how you should live as people of God. And they continue to fail and fail again. So the law is essentially there to show us what? To show us our sin. The law is there to show us that we are not perfect. The law reveals our sin nature. It shows us that as we fail and fail to meet these requirements, that we are not like God and God is God. That is one of the purposes of the law. So that's why in verse 22, Paul says what? Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That is like a loaded verse. But essentially what Paul is trying to say is, hey, the law was there so that you feel this limitation of yourself. You feel that, oh, I'm not perfect. I can't meet up to the standard that God has for us. We feel imprisoned and we bound by the law. That's essentially what it's supposed to feel. Why? Only in that way are we going to notice that we have sin within us. If everything was all great and we were all living in righteousness, we would not know that we had this kind of sin nature within us. It's only because the law entered in, we are realizing, wow, we're sinners. And what does that lead to? We can't help ourselves. No matter how much we try to meet up to the standard, no matter how much we try to perfect ourselves, we fail time and time again. We can't do it by ourselves. We are utterly helpless. We need a savior. Now, um, I hate going to the hospital. Uh, anybody else hates going to the hospital? Okay, yes. Thank, thank you, Christine. <laughs> um, I hate going to the hospital, not because of like just meeting the doctor and whatnot. I hate going to the hospital because I'm really afraid I'm going to get bad news. Like I go in for a cough and I think, oh, it's probably a cold. And then I go to the doctors and they say, oh my God, you have something horrible. Like you need to stay at the hospital. That's my initial fear of why I hate hospitals, right? And so there was a time where I was working. This was like about five, six years ago. I was working in radio. Uh, I was a writer for a, like a music show. And so because I was part of a music show, I had to really hustle. Like I had a lot of meetings with different artists and management companies. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really write. I just basically set up the whole production of the show, you know, got people connected to one another. And so my life was kind of like flipped. Like I would be mostly active around the evening and night times and I would sleep during the day and uh in in the midst of this because i'm having all these quote-unquote meetings with people i would drink a lot and I, I, back then i was smoking a lot too because i was stressed and so uh i wasn't in the most healthiest state which gave me a greater fear of going to the hospital if i were ever sick so usually what would happen is i would get a cold in the winter then i would just like you know, eat a bunch of pills just to kind of make sure I get through the symptoms and then I feel better, then I'll be okay, right? Um, I never went to the hospital. I hated going to the hospital. But there was this one year, I believe it was 2012, I had this really bad cough. And it wasn't just like, <coughs> I have a cough. It was like 
phlegmy cough. Like it was from deep within. Like I sounded like a guy when I was coughing. And every time I breathed like really deeply, I heard this like gurgle in my lung. Like it was like a rattling. Like I I sounded really horrible. And even then I was so like, I'm not going to go to the hospital. And so I waited it out. I, I had a terrible fever at the time. All I would do is eat like painkillers and fever reducers just so I can get by my day. And then I would just rest at home. Now this continued on for like about six, seven weeks. I know that's really foolish, but that's true. It continued on for that long because I really absolutely dreaded going to the hospital. And then finally it reached a point where I was like, okay, you know what? I need to go to the hospital. This is not getting any better. It's actually getting worse. And I was really fearful for my life. And so I went to the hospital and they, you know, the doctor with a stethoscope, he kind of heard like my breathing. I I didn't really think he needed a stethoscope. Like it was really bad. And uh, he was like, okay, we need to take like a chest CT, like a a CAT scan to, to see what your lungs are like, because it sounds like there's some fluid that built up in your lungs. And I was thinking like, oh, it's not going to be that bad. Okay, sure, whatnot, you know. And I was like, can you just give me like a shot and some medicine so I can feel better and I'll just get over this really nasty cold. I know every winter we say that the cold is like the nastiest cold of the year, right? So I was like, I just want to get over this cold so I can go back to work and go back to my normal life. And he's like, no, we really need to take this scan. I was like, oh, shoot. And so I went and then uh, I came back to his office and like the results were on his screen. Now, let me first show you a picture of what a healthy lung looks like. This is what a healthy lung looks like, okay? Um, It's like your lungs are filled with air, right? And so essentially, there's nothing that's supposed to be shown. So the black part is like the normal part. And the little like white blob in the middle of the chest cavity, that's your heart. And then you see the rib cage and all the bones, right? Um, So that is what a healthy lung looks like. My doctor looked at his screen, and his face, you immediately see in his face, he's like, oh. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I'm going to get bad news. And he just turned the monitor and showed me the screen and showed the results of my lungs, which looked like this. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) You can immediately tell that something's wrong. Like, you don't need to be a doctor to know that there's something utterly wrong with that lung. Now, you see all that white part that's blocking, like, the lung cavity? It's actually fluid. So this happens when you either have like tuberculosis or some kind of lung disease where fluid starts to build up in your lungs. And uh, it also happens in lung cancer patients. So when I saw this, I was immediately like, oh my gosh, I might have cancer. Like I'm going to die. I was really afraid. But the doctor was like, you know, it's okay. I mean, judging by your age and, you know, like your age, because I was young. I was like, what, mid-20s or something? He goes, I don't think it's lung cancer. There's a very slim chance it might be, but definitely there's something going on there that fluid is continuously building up. So we need to take the fluid out with like a ginormous syringe. And first of all, you need to be admitted in the hospital. Then we have to go. I didn't know that using a big syringe to take out fluid is actually like a surgical procedure. Like I had to sign all these documents. Like if anything goes wrong and I die, the hospital is not liable for this and things like that, which scared me even more. But basically I had to stay in the hospital for at least five days uh, and they had to check in. They're like, most likely it's going to be tuberculosis. Um, tuberculosis. My mom was like really ashamed when she heard of this. Cause she's like, man, that's like a third world disease. Like we don't get it in developed countries. Like, please don't tell anybody you ever had TB, but yeah, the test results came back and I actually had TB and that's why the fluid was building up in my lungs. 
And so I had to spend five days at a hospital. I had to get treatment. Tuberculosis is one of those diseases that's really hard to get rid of. Like, even now, if my immune system starts crashing, it could flare up at any time. I'm not contagious, by the way. But it, it could flare up at any time. And so um, you have to take medication for at least six months. At least six months, I had to take, like, these huge pills, like, at least 13 of them at a time just so that I can get rid of it. Yeah. And then if that doesn't work, I had to take it for two years. So the doctor was like, make sure you don't skip your medication. I was like, okay. And so after six months, I was all cleared. Everything is great. I'm perfectly healthy now. And so, but that was a story. But had I not gone to the hospital, I would have not gotten a proper diagnosis of what my condition was like. I would have slowly drowned. That's what he said. He's like, if you just continue this, you're essentially drowning yourself because fluid is continuously building up in your lungs, right? I would have died of pain and slow death, painful and slow death, right? Only because I went to the hospital was I able to get a proper diagnosis of what my condition was really like. So the law is kind of like this hospital. It's giving you a proper diagnosis of what your heart is like. It's giving you a proper diagnosis of where you are right now before God. And it's saying, you have sinned, but you can't help yourself because you're, you, you're, you're essentially like flawed. And you need a savior to help you. That is what it is. The law, it reveals our sin. Now, if we continue to read in the passage, there's another purpose for the law. In verse 23 to 25, it says this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So this is kind of what I was talking about, right? We are feeling imprisoned or captive under the law because of our sin. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came or until faith came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the second point that Paul leads us to is that the law instructs us. The law instructs us. Now, it says that the law was our guardian in verse 24. Now, this word guardian in Greek, I'm not going to say the Greek thing because I'm afraid I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. But what this essentially means is it's like tutor or like a supervisor. And it's not like a supervisor in our normal sense. It's like a nanny of the house. So back in, in those days when this was written, family households would have servants. And there would be specific servants that would take care of the children. And what they did was they were like teachers slash nannies of the house. And so they would teach these kids what rules you need to live by under their father's household. So it, they, they're teaching like table manners. Like you wake up, you make your bed. You say hi to your father. You greet your father. You live according to these manners, these kind of table manners. This is what you need to do. The law instructs us. It's kind of like this supervisor that is overseeing our growth and having us live under these strict set of rules. Now, at first, it might seem like, oh, my gosh, like that's such a drag. Like the law basically then is telling us what to do and what not to do, right? But the whole purpose of these supervisors was not to just merely keep us there. It's during our childhood, while they were growing, they were to live under these certain set of rules so that later on when they actually become adults, 
they're no longer bound by those rules, but because they've learned the value behind these laws, these rules, or the heart behind why their parents would have them live according to these rules, they go and they live accordingly, being thankful for what their parents had taught them or what their supervisor had taught them. It's essentially setting people up to live a very mature uh, life where they have character, they're disciplined, they're not just being like, little man child's just living however they want to live that's essentially what the role of the supervisor or this guardian was supposed to be and so paul is saying this the law why was it given to you is because you are taking baby steps in your walk with god and you are living under god's household under god's roof or in his household or in his family and so god gave these laws kind of like the supervisor or this nanny to instruct you to teach you the values of what it means to be people of god what it means to be set apart from all the other people what it means to be a family of god it's essentially what paul is saying and that's why god gave you the law is to help instruct you is to teach you the values of what it means to live a holy and godly life now before Christ, okay, I really don't like this slide, but please bear with me. Um, now, before Christ, meaning before faith had come or before Christ had fulfilled these laws, to the Israelites, to the Jews, it might have given them a sense of bondage. Why? Because they had to live by these rules, right? Uh, it would have been a very impersonal relationship. It would have been hard to create a very personal relationship why because they're constantly somewhat living under this anxiety or this fear that if they don't meet up to these measures they're going to be punished or they're going to be rebuked they're going to be corrected and so that's kind of like the image that we have but after christ or after faith came what all of that is fulfilled and so what pastor melma talked about last week was how Christ's righteousness was imputed upon us. It wasn't just how he fulfilled like the law and took away like our sins, right? It was that Christ's righteousness is upon us. So when God sees us, we already met the whole requirements of the law in essence. So what? It gives us freedom. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live like we have to meet these conditions or these rules or these requirements. We're actually free to have a relationship with God. Why? Because we're righteous. When God sees us, he's like, you are a good and faithful son. Like, you, you abide by my rules. You're part of this family. There's no need to fear. And that's why it becomes a personal relationship. It essentially frees you from those kind of duties. It becomes very, very personal. And because of that, you don't just say, oh, I'm free from these laws. I don't have to abide by them anymore. But because you understand the heart behind why God had instructed you to live under these rules, because you understand his character, because you understand the loving kindness behind of him giving us these laws, we joyfully submit to these laws. We joyfully go back to the laws and say, wow, God, I see your heart behind all of this. Yes, I gladly submit myself to you. I gladly want to live in a way that is pleasing to you, holy and righteous before you. So it's no longer about uh, meeting certain requirements or pleasing God by doing things right. We've already pleased God. We're already righteous before God. We give a personal relationship with God. We're just simply walking out mature in character. We're walking out as adults and no longer children. That's why God has lifted up that whole supervisor or the, or the nanny thing. We're no longer coerced into obedience, but we're internalizing these basic values. And with a joyful heart, we're living it out in freedom. So, in an essence, what does that mean? It means that because Christ 
God loved us first. Because God chose us as his people, and he sent his son to die on the cross for us, removing all of these things, and therefore we respond back in love. It's this love that fulfills the law, which is essentially what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 13. He says love is fulfilling of the law. It's not the deeds in itself. So I would like to sum it up. God had his people, uh, gave them the law. And essentially what he was doing was revealing our sins, right? He was making things worse before he made things better. It's kind of like how you can't really see the lightness without the darkness. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like the comparison, right? You can't have a shadow without the sunlight and the darkness and things like that. You need to have something like a measurement or a ruler of holiness to show what unrighteousness looks like. And that's what the law did. And on top of that, what? He teaches us and instructs us. He gives us basic principles on how to be part of his family, what it means to be part of his family, and how to live it out. So the gospel, in essence, doesn't work without the law. The gospel, the, the gospel doesn't only work in itself with only the message of Christ. The law actually completes the salvific story. Without the law, there would be no need for grace. You know what I mean? Or if we, cheap, if, if we just kind of bypass the law and let's say we immediately go to Christ. We say, oh, your sins are all forgiven. You're going to be like, what sin? It doesn't match up. We need both. Law and grace go hand in hand together to complete the perfect story. Unless we see and we know by the law that we are utterly helpless, that we are of sinful people, how proud we are in that too. The message of salvation and what Christ paid for us on the cross, it, it's not as liberating or it's not as exhilarating. It loses its value. But Christ paid a hefty price so that we can live in freedom, right? And the law kind of shows us that. It gives us that ruler. And I think when we look at the entire thing, like, you know, um, I'm pretty sure next week we're going to get into, like, what it means to be a son living in the household of Christ or what it means to be part of the family of God. I think when I think about the entire narrative going all the way from, you know, God making creation and then God going to Abraham and making this covenant promise, this unbreakable promise, this promise that was solely responsible on him and then in, introducing the law to his people, then showing grace, then salvation, and then living out our lives, uh, you know, joyfully, willingly, obedient to the law. I think all of this can be summarized in the picture of a marriage. In a marriage. Now, um, uh, our, our sister Sena and our brother Walter just got married last week. Congratulations to you guys. Now, I have a question to ask Walter. Walter, did you do anything in your life? Did you do any works to deserve a wife like Sena? Oh, brother, you're taking too long to answer this question. <laughs> did you do anything to earn Sena? Oh, <laughs> you did? What did you do? <laughs> huh? What did you say? Huh? Oh, buy flowers. <laughs> okay. But nothing that, um, 
okay, man, this is not working out. I thought, I thought you would be like, no, I did nothing to deserve a wife like Senna. Okay, let me, let me direct the question to someone else. Told me, hey, did you do anything? <laughs> did you do anything in your life to deserve an amazing wife like Luna? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jacob, can I ask you the same question? Did you do anything to deserve a wife like Amy? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I think if you ask any husband and wife, it's, it, it becomes a little clearer. Like, there's really nothing that you could have done, like no work you could have technically done to deserve that person to be your spouse. You know, like there's nothing that you could have done to say like, oh, yeah, I, of course I deserve her. I think if you ask most spouse, you're like, man, I'm so thankful for my spouse. There's really nothing that I did to deserve this person to be in my life, to do life with me, you know. Um, and I think that's essentially what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. As God's people, there's really nothing that we did to earn God's love or to be in this relationship with God other than the fact that God simply chose us and simply loved us. That's it. That is all that it is. It's like this marriage of a husband asking a, a, a wife, asking a girl in her hand in marriage by giving this engagement ring. That's kind of essentially what the covenant was about. When God made the covenant with Abraham, it was like he proposed to his people saying, hey, I'm binding myself to you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to do the rest of my life with you till death do us part. For better or for worse, for sickness and in health, I'm going to continue until the day I die. And that's essentially what God was doing, right? But living together, I'm pretty sure all the married couples here can testify that it's not really easy. Two people coming together, two people that had a totally different upbringing, different family culture, different background coming together. Um, I heard by, with, um, through so many couples that their first year of marriage was by far the most challenging years of their lives. Why? It's because two worlds are colliding together and they're learning how to do life together. And so essentially when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and, and, and God kind of brought them to Mount Sinai, what he was doing was he was teaching how to live together, how to work together. And he was presenting all these ground rules. So I, I, I think it kind of looks like this. Like, hey, honey, if you're going to stay out late, can you make sure to text me the next day? Like, uh, text me before you come in late. Oh, not the next day. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Oh, yeah, man, my, I'm getting tongue twisted here. Okay. Or, or um, you know, I know this is a given, but, you know, hey, can you not cheat on me? You know, like. Like, you, you know, you're, you're my wife, you're my husband. Like, can you please stay faithful to me? Um, hey, um, honey, let's have date nights. I know we're really busy with our work. We're really busy with our everyday lives. Let's have date nights. Let's spend time together. Like these ground rules. Hey, make, can you make sure you do the dishes? Can you not leave wet towels on the floor? Uh, it's going to end up being smelly. So let's be loving to one another. And can you just put it in the laundry basket? I don't know what rules couple comes up with. But essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out a way on how to live together, how to become one. And I think that's what it means when law and grace come together. Law doesn't have anything to do with God choosing you. God already chose you and chose to do life with you. But law is essentially laying down the ground rules of how to do life together. And so based on that concept, if we look at commandments like this, you shall have no other gods before me. What is God essentially saying? He's saying, hey, honey, 
please don't look at that man <laughs> with lustful eyes. Please don't have a wandering eye. Please don't cheat on me because I'm committed to you. It would break my heart if you were ever to look at somebody else the way, like, like, like you don't look at me, you know? Like, if you love on that person more than you do me, it would utterly break my heart. Or commandments like this. It's like what I said earlier. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Holy was what just simply set apart, different from other, other things. Honey, let's make Thursday our date night. Okay, no matter what happens, no matter how much work we got on our plates, let's drop everything. Let's make sure our kids are with our, our parents, and let's just have a date night together. Let's enjoy what we have. Let's enjoy life and celebrate the oneness that we have. How about other rules like this? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, and so on and so forth. Like, Honey, those are my brothers. I'm not joking. Oh, my God. Why are you guys laughing? I said, honey, those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. Those are people that I love. Can you not hurt them? Can you, can you also love them like I love them? Like, you see, the Ten Commandments then gets a completely different spin. The law gets a completely different spin. It's no longer something that you need to abide by perfectly, but it's out of this love and a relationship that you have with the Lord that you are living out these things. So that's where I would like to end my sermon today. That is the purpose of the law. That is why even today in the church, we don't walk away from the law. We don't toss it out the window. We have it. We teach it. We teach our kids to abide by it. Why? Because it is part of the Christian life. Law and grace work together to complete the salvific story that God is writing. It completes the relationship that we have. So I'll just end us in prayer. <clears throat> God, I thank you.